Hey, I'm Niffin. I'm Morabian. And this is the Old News with Cool Dudes. I almost said Cool News with Old Dudes, and that would not be accurate. Um, at least half I mean, of it wouldn't we're be getting, accurate. We're getting old. Like, we're, we're, yeah. I'm going to be 30 next year. I'm going to be 30 in like three months. Old. Uh, dude, what, happen- what good happens after you turn 30? Uh, you can start counting down your days to retirement, I guess. S- yeah, I'm getting close to the senior citizens discount. You can like uh, start like thinking about buying motorcycles once you hit your midlife crisis in like 10 years. There you go. Yeah, maybe my insurance will start to drop a little bit because I'm getting older. But then you'll have a lot of people like calling you for life insurance because you're closer to death. Oh, God. I already have life insurance. Do you? Yeah. Do you not have life insurance? I don't know. Am I a, be- am I a beneficiary on your life insurance? Uh, I don't know. I At one point, I legitimately thought about putting you on there. I know oh, whenever yes. I bought the new life insurance policy, I came home like a week later, and my fiance was watching like <clears throat> the mystery murder shows about <laughs> wives that kill their husbands, and I was like, oh, hell no. We're gonna we're gonna cover you in sardine oil. I mean that's a the that's a Tiger King reference that you wouldn't understand oh, yeah, because I haven't you're watched not watching Tiger King yet. I need to not watching the dang show. Well, it's supposed to be cold the next few days, so maybe that'll be a good time for me to to hey, sit down and burn through it. Cool cats and kittens. No, I'm never gonna financially recover from this. <laughs> that's the only quote I know because I see all there's the memes and they make so me laugh. Many. And there's there's a podcast about it too, which is even more like. Like the podcast about Tiger King, uh, the they go a little more in depth in the story and it's wild. Um, but the documentary on Netflix, it's it lets you see all their faces and lets you see like the actual story play out. So it's like a little more shocking because you find out, you know, you knew in the podcast Joe Exotic had husbands, but you didn't know that they looked like that and that they like had two teeth and like all kinds of tattoos and yada yada. So like. You see, you, you hear all these voices, and you hear about them on the podcast, and then you actually see them, and you're like, whoa, wait, that's the guy? So it's kind of odd. Nice. I need to watch it. I'll watch it this week. That's my goal this week, is to burn through Tiger King. So I'll do it. Well, for our first episode of Old News with Cool Dudes podcast, Marabian and I talked for a while last week, and we decided that our first topic, we are going to talk about trade. Uh, specifically trade in Trans-Saharan Africa and trade in the Indian Ocean. So I guess first off, Moravi, whenever you teach these topics in your world history class, obviously we don't get to go in depth with a lot of things. Right. Um, What are some of the main things you kind of cover whenever you teach this topic? The things that were traded, the things that were traded between who and how that in impacted i almost said infected that would be really that would be really cognizant of today uh how that impacted um all parties involved so like let's talk about northern africa like you might look at big old empires in western africa that traded with eastern africa and the middle east and how that impacted the northern africa the northern africa in its entirety and then you know same thing for southeast asia and the indian ocean trade how about you? Yeah, so I focus on a lot of the, the items that were traded. You know, we, we talk a lot about salt and how valuable salt was uh, in, in early history. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, 13th century, 14th century and before, just the, the incredible value of salt. We talk a lot about gold. Whenever I teach trans-Saharan trade, 
we focus a lot on Mansa Musa. Yep. You know, the still to this day, probably the richest man in history ever. Uh, and, and just his story, which is really cool. Um, and then the, the overarching theme, though, is how both physical and non-physical things that were traded changes lives uh, and, and changes cultures um, across vast areas. Right. Like like yeah. we talk a lot about Muslims traveling across the Saharan to get gold. And then you start to see Western Africa start to become Muslim, right? They, they start adopting the practice of Islam. Uh, and I think that's something that we're probably going to touch on quite a bit in this episode. It's just these unintended things that got traded that were probably more substantial than the actual physical items that got traded. Yeah. Uh, do you have any stories about maybe a trade that you made that was good for you or bad for you? Because, I mean, thinking about our president of the United States, when he came in office, he said the deal between what and China was a trading disaster. Was that it? Yeah. So have you ever made any trade disasters or trade issues or great trades? Um, so, yeah, I have a story real quick. Uh, and, then, and then I'm sure you have a trade that you can talk about as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, my trade, so our students that are listening to this, I think some of them might relate to this, but for you and I, I mean, whenever we were in elementary school was when Pokemon first came out. Yeah, went hard. Uh, the the TV show, the card game, the original Game Boy Color games. And so for, for all you young children out there who are listening to this, uh, we didn't have Wi-Fi back in the day, so in order to trade Pokemon on your Game <laughs> yeah, Boy, you had to get the link connector. You thing. had to get yeah the link cable. You had this yeah. like cord that you plugged your Game Boy into, then your friend plugged their Game Boy into, and you had to like it had to like physically transport data. It couldn't do it like through the cloud or whatever like we do now. And so I remember, I was probably like eight years old, nine years old, and my mom had a friend who had two sons and then my mom has two sons, me and my younger brother. And so all of us were going to go to the Jasmine Morant children's museum. Have you ever been there? I don't even know what that is. Oh dude. It's like when you're a nine year old, it's heaven is what it is. What, it's it, out in what is it? It's like a, it's kind of like a science museum, kind of like the Omniplex, but it also has like a bunch of like playground equipment and stuff. It's just this really big, like, their slogan was where kids play to learn and adults learn to play. I don't know. It was just, it was the, it was, it was like a combination of discovery zone and the Omniplex. Oh dude, I remember DZ discovery zone. That was fun. Oh yeah. So anyway, so we were driving out to Seminole to, which is like what, like 45 minutes to an hour away. Something like that. Um, and, and so I got in the car and I had my game boy and my mom's friend, her son also had a game boy. And we were about the same age, and he said, hey, what are you playing? And I said, oh, Pokemon. He was like, oh, I'm playing Pokemon too. It's like, oh, that's awesome. So we started talking about Pokemon, and I was a lot farther along in the game than he was. And he said, hey, I'm trying to beat this this gym trainer in Pokemon, but my Pokemon aren't strong enough. Will you trade me some so I can fight, and then I'll trade them back? And I was really excited because my Pokemon were super strong. I was like, yeah, dude, I'll send you like my Pikachu and my Gyarados and my uh, my Blastoise and all these cool Pokemon. So I tr- we hooked up the link cable and we traded and he started fighting with my Pokemon. We got to Seminole, we did our thing. And then later on in the afternoon, we're driving home 
And I said, hey, can you trade me my Pokemon back now because I want to play? And this kid looked at me and said, no, I think I'm going to keep them. <laughs> and I was like, you can't do that. This so it was a trading disaster for me. <laughs> it means war. But this kid fell asleep on the ride home. So I hooked the Game Boys up with the link cable, turned them both on, traded my Pokemon back, traded all his Pokemon to me, and then deleted his game. So I ended up getting getting the final word. It's kind of like in, in history, it's kind of like For somebody rips you off in trade, so then you uh, you declare war and like invade their territory. It's kind of what I did. Um, you steal someone's Pokemon when back in like 1999, those are fighting words. Like you don't get away with that. Wow. So, so what's your trading story? My trading story is just like really simple, uh, and it's really, really p- kind of nice. Um, it doesn't involve ruining some other kid's life as soon as he wakes up. Um, oh, that kid didn't wake up till after I got out of the car. He got home and turned on that Game Boy, mm-hmm. and probably had a really bad time. What happened? Um, mine is fairly recent. Because I uh, I've been driving a Toyota Corolla for the longest time, and you know it's a nice car. Like I got it, I got it when we were student teaching, and I, I got it brand new uh, when you were up student teaching at Moore, and I was at Southmore, and um, I just been driving it for the past five whatever years, and then my dad he basically like bought this BMW off like off one of his good friends. And was like, you know what, I'm not going to use it. And my sister in Los Angeles needed a car. And so the thought was like, hey, would you consider trading your Toyota to your sister for a BMW? Which has like way more like things in the car, so many more cameras, so many more like accessories and random things you can do. Yeah, this is like somebody saying, hey, will you give me that $10 bill? For my one hundred dollar bill, yeah. So I was like, I was like, yeah. I mean, I, at first I was like, I don't know, and then later on I was like, yeah, let's do that. That's that's not a problem. So that's that was my trade deal. That was so like now like with all the hail and stuff going on, and like all the bad weather, I had to clean out the garage to make sure that I could fit it in the garage because this thing has a moonroof. And for those of you that don't know what a moonroof is, is it's like a sunroof except way longer. Um, so, um, and it's all glass, right? It's all made of what your windshield and stuff is made out of. So I had to clean out the garage this past week because I knew storms are coming today, yesterday and the whatever it's spring and, uh, park it in the garage. So like if it does hail, the moonroof is protected. But of course, if a tornado comes, I'll just get a new car. My favorite part of that story is your dad bought a BMW and then was just like, yeah, I'm not going to use this. Like, what a flex. My dad does that all the time. <laughs> like, it's really, I, I don't I don't understand. Like, man, what I, don't a get, flex. I, I, don't, I don't get it. He's like, yeah, I was thinking about selling it. But, like, if I could give it to you and you would use it and your sister has your car because she wrecked hers, I mean, like, nobody has a payment. And, like, that's that would be fantastic. I was like, that would be fantastic. <laughs> so that's what happened with the that's BMW. That's awesome. All right, well, Moravian, let's jump into some Trans-Saharan trade talk. I, uh, so, so we both teach this in class, but this is a chance for us to get maybe a little more in-depth. Um, I, I guess I'm just going to throw it over to you. The floor is you to touch on whatever you want. I have some interesting stuff about Trans-Saharan trade as well, so uh, 
I don't know, just some thoughts. Go for it. All right. So, like, you look at Northern African nations today, uh, like Libya, Egypt, um, Algeria, a lot of other ones that I'm just, like, blanking in my mind right now. Uh, you look at them today, and they're super Islamic. Many of them are Muslims. Many of them are uh, Sunni Muslims. And there's a reason why that happened today. Uh, there's a reason why there is an extensive Muslim population actually in Spain, which is right there next to uh, Northern Africa. Yeah, like Morocco. Yeah, Morocco. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a reason why they're all super Muslim. And it it has a lot to do with the trans-Saharan trade. It has a lot to do with uh, Mansa Musa that you mentioned earlier. And like the big empires like the Malian Empire, which Mansa Musa had in the Songhe Empire and all the other ones that go on with it. And what's really unique about trans-Saharan trade, because like we can talk about the Silk Road and like how it changed so much religion and how... It changed so many other things like ideas and yada yada. But what's really cool about trans-Saharan trade is because unlike the Silk Roads and unlike the Roman Roads and unlike other trading like routes, Northern Africa really, they remained the same after their initial like encounter with Muslims that made most of Northern Africa Muslim. And you look at Mansa Musa, uh, there's lots of stories about him and being like possibly the most richest guy in history just today like again like you mentioned earlier they had a lot of gold they had a lot of salt a lot of sea salt a lot of just mines in general and um monsa musa of course made that trip to mecca uh but on the way to mecca he was stopped in cairo because he like he's literally a king and he uh he dropped off so much gold in Cairo that it depressed the value of gold, meaning like he dropped off so much gold that it flooded the market and made gold cheap, which is pretty unreal yeah, on his so way to Mecca. Back to the whole idea of supply and demand. He just gave Cairo so much supply that it was essentially worthless. Yeah, it's really impressive. And I think it said it depressed the value for like, what was it? It was over 100 years, right? Something like that. Like he, he just gave loads of gold to anyone who wanted it. Yeah. And like I really like the power move he had, which like he spoke perfect Arabic, but he wouldn't literally get off his horse. He talked to somebody via an interpreter to talk to somebody in Arabic, even what though he a spoke flex. Yeah, like, My that's, man. that's awesome. And um, but one of the cool things is that every time Mansa Musa came back to his empire, because he was a very uh, important guy, he was very well. Uh, known, prestigious people knew about him, and he, they knew like of his opulence and like how awesome he was, and he was well respected. And every time he came back to the Malian Empire and that region in general, he would bring back tons and tons and tons of information in in the form of he would bring in Muslim scholars and he would bring in Muslim uh, experts and stuff like that. To where like he brought a ton of people from the Middle East. And they built libraries made out of this the knowledge that Muslims already had. And after they had done that, really, they didn't change. They didn't change because, I mean, you look at the Silk Road and there's tons of things, you know, floating around with Islam and like Buddhism and Islam and Hinduism and everything mixes and interacts. And really, um, the Northern Africans... They once they got the word of Muhammad, which is the the original teachings of Islam, 
they really stayed the same. They stayed pretty current, which is actually pretty remarkable and admirable that they they really had this shell of protection over what the northern half of that continent was, that they didn't sway away from their ways after they had majority, majority converted to Islam. So I thought that was pretty unique and pretty awesome about that. What about you? So before I touch on a few things, a quick question I wanted to ask you, and and maybe this is a, it's, I don't know if it's a question that you're going to have an answer to, but maybe it's just something we can talk through. Trade between Northern Africans, Western, like Western coast Africans over in Mali and Ghana, all the way over with people from like Saudi Arabia and Iraq and, uh, you know, Syria. And, and that's how Islam made its way into Northern and Western Africa what do you think? So, so obviously, the, the people in Africa had some sort of religious belief, right? Probably yeah, uh, they were tribal. Yeah, tribal and polytheistic, <clears throat> animistic. It's interesting. Why was it that Islam translated over to Africa and not those African religions working their way over into the Middle East? Does that make sense? Like both religions yeah. are interacting. Why did one convert and not the other? Uh, because, I mean, you got to look at it from a, a big standpoint where <clears throat> you go to the Middle East and you see like just this one major religion. And the major religion of Islam is Sunnis, even though there's a small majority, a small, a small majority, small minority known as a Shia um, of Muslims. But like there's this overwhelming presence of mosques and there's literally a text and like how you can reach salvation of some of some effect and a code of living. And it's this one big enterprise, so to speak. It's like an institution, right? Whereas um, you uh, you go to Africa, right? And you have, you know, you have your empires like the Songhe Empire, the Malian Empire, uh, the Golden Coast and stuff like that. You have these smaller empires um, but and, and then in between, really not a lot because it's, you know, the, the Saharan Desert. Um, but they all have several different ways of living. Um, and every time you go to the Middle East, so to speak, you see all these fantastic and wonderful buildings, like these just immaculate mosques and these immaculate uh, ways of teaching mathematics and art and just other things that they're doing and you say wow like how the how the heck do you get all this stuff how did you even make this building how did you figure out how to like make this at that angle because you know you have to think about all the mathematics that went into that and medical infrastructure and the things that they were doing in the middle east in comparison to maybe what they were doing in africa and you see all the things that the muslims had and you're like well crap like we want to learn from you and they're like the muslims like already have a ready to go book on how to be a muslim um shortly after muhammad's death the prophet and so it would be more likely that they would accept this massive institution that's growing rapidly of people becoming um muslim instead of maybe muslims adopting african tribal um religion now that doesn't mean that certain african tribes didn't adapt to Islam like I'm sure they maybe combined the two and still kept some traditional methods of is of their African tribal re, uh, religion with Islam but um, I to see it go uh, vice versa would be really odd but you have to think about what they saw the Muslims do these African countries 
and uh, what they wanted from that. That's one of the big reasons why Mansa Musa, that's one of the big reasons why I brought the scholars over to Mali. Like he didn't just like come back with books. He came back with the scholars and said, teach the people, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it's pretty impressive that he did yeah. that. It was able Islam to was probably just more organized. Yeah, they were, because like you look at... More centralized. Yeah, um, looking at nation building, um, China really, like it's really funny to say this, Europe was super decentralized. The Catholic Church was the main power. You have Africa was, uh, China was super centralized because they had a bureaucracy, uh, meaning like you have like an actual government and you actually had people take tests to go higher into government. And then you look at Southeast Asia, which was just not centralized at all, but based upon the caste system, you have, uh, but you had Islam, which they weren't centralized at all, but the only thing they were centralized under in their unique Islamic empires were the teachings of Muhammad and Allah via the Quran for Islam. So like they were this big institution of several Islamic uh, empires that made it just like this big entity that was uh, growing rapidly and still is the fastest growing religion in the world today. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Just and part of what I kind of researched before we talked about this was how some of these things like religion, like ideas, um, even things as simple as like pottery making, sometimes during trade, those things would transfer, right? The, the pottery making of Northern Africans got adopted by Southern African, Sub-Saharan Africa during trade, but some other things did not translate. And it's just interesting looking back in history, seeing what things did make their way via trade, what what changes to culture happened via trade, and what changes didn't happen. And so I, I've I've always found that stuff really fascinating. Um, I want to talk for a second just about some of the logistics of sub-Saharan trade. The Saharan Desert, massive. Absolutely massive. And to cross that, whether you're going from the Middle East over into Northern and even Western Africa, or if you're going from Northern Africa down below the Saharan Desert, getting down closer to the equator, uh, going south, it's a long journey. I mean, they're, we're talking like 40 to 60 days of nonstop travel. And you're not nonstop traveling all 40 to 60 days. You have rest days built in there. So, I mean, we're talking half a year, maybe, to get across. Dang. Which is pretty pretty significant. Now, you the main... Lunch- what kind of Lunchable would you pack for that? Yeah. Um, the deep dish pizza one? Dude, I hate the pizza Lunchables. Oh, whoa, hold up. Hold up. I, this is only like... This is the first, like actual episode and i'm already about to quit what do you which one do you prefer like the nachos like some savage i never really had lunchables when i was a kid but if i ever got them i just got the the crackers and the turkey and the cheese that's disgusting dude the the cold pizza is nasty cold pizza in general is fantastic okay well anyways i'm gonna put a poll for the (laughs) students to sit to say whether voting on like okay sounds good camels were the main way that you traveled across the Saharan Desert. Uh, You could do it on horseback. You could do it with mule. But the problem there, or with a donkey, uh, the problem there is horses and donkeys can carry less weight. They also, uh, they they can't go as far during a day, and they have to get watered a lot more often. Um, 
I mean, we're talking way back even in like BC era. They yeah. were already like crossbreeding camels yeah, to, cool. to, to make this trek happen. So a few stats that I found, some, some research that I did, I just find this incredible. A single camel could carry 530 pounds. That's a lot. Uh, so like when, five... when, the, when the phrase comes out, the straw that broke the camel's back, it was 500 and whatever. Five, 530.1. 530.1. That's what did it. Pounds, yeah. yeah. They could travel 40 <laughs> miles a day carrying Jeez. 530 pounds, which could is you insane. Walk, could you walk? Because like, like, you have to think about how heavy a camel is, right? A camel is probably around 300, 400 pounds, right? At least. Those things are heavy. So like, could you carry basically yourself on top of you for 40 miles, 40 miles a day, a day? That's, with breaks yeah. with breaks in between it's insane there's no way with that heat yeah it's wild i need an idea so, body annual caravans so going once a year some of the annual caravans going across saharan africa Twelve thousand camels in the caravan Jeez. So when you do the math, 12,000 camels, each carrying 530 pounds, that's 6.4 million pounds of cargo. I've only or, seen one camel. Yeah, or equal to 160 <laughs> semi-trucks full of goods today. Yeah, we could really use that to, you know, that's what we should do to New York, to New York City. Camels can't catch the COVID nineteen. Let's send. Can they not? I know that tiger did. Yeah, I guess t- cats can, but transmission between cats and humans is very, very unlikely. I think dogs are safe, but camels don't know about them yet. So let's send yeah. twelve thousand camels carrying medical equipment to those hospitals. Yeah, um, I, I just found the logistics of That's that incredible. insane. Um, also, the leader of a caravan. I mean, they would take ton. They would. You would take just your average trader. You would take. Um, people who would note what's being traded like do yeah. the ledgers and stuff they would bring imams with them who would lead daily muslim prayer five times a day uh, they also had a caravan leader who was known as a kabir k-h-a-b-i-r kabir. and I, I i love this quote um it's from the historian h.j fisher he says that kabir knew the desert routes and the watering places and he was able, even able to find his way by the stars at night, or if needed, by the scent and the touch of sand and vegetation. So he's like Legolas from Lord of the Rings. He can like touch the ground and know a battle's happened, and, and so-and-so's, you know, a week's journey away. They had to be able to touch the sand and the vegetation, and, and from the scent and the touch of it, be able to know what direction they were going, where they were, how far they were away from the next oasis. I, I'm really curious, like, how many times they messed up, though. Yeah, that's a good point. Because <laughs> you, you know they weren't really he, Oh, he's, he's, he's totally BSing you. Puts his ear down to a sand dune. Yep, about another three hours that way. Like, have they not ever thought about just, like, establishing... Like, is this how Moses got lost for 40 days or 40, 40 nights years. or whatever? <laughs> 40 years, bro. 40 years? <laughs> <laughs> whatever. <laughs> they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Yeah, they, that's, that's why that's why the, the modern invention of, uh, you know, maps and road signs were invented. Did yeah, you know that? And, and they said that they would <laughs> trek out the, the maps of the Saharan even back then whenever cartography wasn't very big yet and we didn't have the tools to be able to map make, they were still so incredibly accurate because of, of how 
good you had to be because if you are traveling to an oasis and you need water and your camels need water and you get off track, I mean, half your caravan's going to die. Yeah, and think you about know? think about camels and why else though they would be trusty over horses because like horses they have they, they literally their hoofs if you don't know this their hoofs are literally their toenails that they people clip them all the time and it's pretty weird if have you ever seen like a horse getting its hoof clipped uh yeah it's weird it's pretty and, weird and that's like, why it's okay to like nail horseshoes on a horse yeah because it's just like into their their toenail yeah and 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 like so like they have to like clean it out and like just like literally get these massive looking like bolt cutter looking things and like clip off their nails it's pretty wild yeah it's like and, the same thing could like chop off my freaking arm yeah and um you they you look at that and their hooves are just so like sm- they're, they're like they're around they're circular so like when they're running they can punch holes in the sand where whereas uh you look at camels their feet are very wide and not only are their feet wide they're actually like they're not hardened they're actually kind of soft uh there are there there's like padding there like like a dog's foot so to speak um it's almost kind of like a snowshoe yeah in a way it's like, like that's it's, a, that's the purpose of it and not only like do they have those feet that are like more soft and they're not like hard like a horse's hoof they're very very wide so like let's say you were stepping in like stepping somewhere they have a very wide grasp of the sand that, that lets them not slow down it's pretty impressive as far as camels versus horses i mean like me and my ap classes we debate camels versus horses and camel always wins so it's fun nice. times nice so let's change gears just a little bit and talk about indian ocean trade which also includes Africa, mainly the east coast of Africa. Yep. But the Indian Ocean trade, I mean, it covers a large swath of area. Basically, yeah. everything that the Indian Ocean touches, we're going all the way down to Madagascar. Yeah, up people throughout forget the, about Indonesia. Yeah, up through the Middle East, country. India, uh, Vietnam, yep. Cambodia, Indonesia, Malaysia. Micronesia. Just a, a ton and ton of areas. And... I guess I'll kind of kick us off on this because I want to piggyback on what you talked about earlier. Indonesia has the largest Muslim population on the planet. You know how it got that way? Yeah, from from that trade, right? It, it's, yeah. it's so fascinating to me how you can literally just track backwards in yep. time and see how Islam made its way over into Southeast Asia, right? The, the, the trade that happens... A lot of Muslims are trading and, and getting on boats and going over to Southeast Asia to trade. And so these Southeast Asian countries, again, kind of like what you mentioned with the African tribes that have like tribal religion and, and polytheistic tra- traditions. The, the Southeast Asian countries were able to adopt Islam because it was more organized and it gave you something in common with the people you are trading with. Yep. And so as you build those commonalities, uh, trade flourishes because you're now kind of like buddy-buddy. And so Islam, via boats, makes its way from the Middle East over to places like Indonesia. And then you look today, and Indonesia has this massive Muslim population mm-hmm. um, that, that so literally we, yeah. we can track the, the story of how it got there, right? It's almost kind of like a, like putting a puzzle together, right? You, you, you go piece by piece by piece. And if you follow it, you can start to get the whole picture. It's really fascinating. Yeah, and, and it changed both ways, too. Um, you look at 
you know, because Indonesia and, and India and all these other countries, many of them, before uh, this trade in Southeast Asia and Indian Ocean trade, many of them were Buddhist and or uh, Buddhist or Hindu. Okay, um, specifically in India, Southeast Asia, they are most likely to be Hindu, and you got to look at what religion they're most likely um, over there in Southeast Asia, and they were Hindu, in which that means that there's a caste system. And of course, the caste system, it goes by layers. Um, it's, a, it's a pyramid. You have priests and educators at the top. You have like soldiers and warriors. Second, you have merchants, which would be guys that would be trading. Third, and then right, above, right below them are peasants. And then there's another group called the Untouchables, the Dalits. They're not even a part of the pyramid. Uh, these are people that like they're just cut off from society. It's a it's a that's how they view things. Of course, yeah. that's outlawed today, but like socially, it's still enforced. But um, what was interesting is that you you have all these guys and these these Hindu folks, and these Hinduists trading as well. And in you know, they're it's not just one sided. It's not like Easter the Eastern Africans and. Um, Saudi Arabia, it's not like they're just trading with Indonesia. And they have Indonesian ships going over there too. And they, they're seeing like, wow, like these, this is the way you live and yada yada. Especially if they're a merchant or maybe even a lower class peasant on a merchant ship. Uh, they see people that like living really good lives and really enjoyed their lives. And so it made people, it spurred on conversion because people said, you know, like, I don't want to be on the lower rungs of society and with the caste system it's so rigid and it doesn't allow people to move up like no matter what in in the caste system if even if like you know you were incredibly smart you worked really hard you weren't going to move up to the next caste you weren't going to be like treated any better so people said you know what we're going to convert to islam because for the most part everybody's treated the same and you know you work hard and like that's part of the, like you know the religions like working hard like that gets you somewhere in life it offers a lot of social mobility so like it changed that and in turn you look at muslims in general and it originally to be a muslim uh, merchant especially on the seas in southeast asia it was looked down upon in the religion um, that it said um, uh, and the the Christians believed this, the Muslims believed this too, that it was easier um, for a, a poor man or something like that to go to heaven than than it is a, a, a rich man, like a, a like a rich man was able to, or what was it? It was, oh, it was easier for a camel to go through the needle needle of an eye than for the a eye of the man. needle. Yeah, whatever it is. <laughs> I don't know. Then for um, a rich man to get to heaven, yeah, it's a, the the message there of, be, of being humble, yeah. right? Being humbled and and uh, being broke and and not putting your your stock into worldly things. Yeah. And what's interesting about it is that over time, because of this of these massive conversions, and over time of just like wow, okay, you know what? Maybe merchant uh, you know, mercantilism, maybe it's not bad. Uh, Muslims started to really relax their policy and their their view on trade in general. But they said, okay, well, all right, trading, 
mercantilism, being a merchant, it's not that bad. Um, and it's acceptable if you're being fair with your prices. So they went from like saying, you know what, none of this, that's kind of like looked down upon to saying, okay, well, if you're being a fair merchant, that's okay. And you can thank Indian Ocean Trade for that in Southeast Asia because there's so many guys, like it, it went back and forth. You know, you have the Southeast Asians um, in Indonesia, in India, there are several thousands of Muslims. There's you know they they traded with them and saw different kinds of lives with the muslims so they they converted and vice versa also started trading a lot more which caused many muslims to adopt a policy of trade being socially acceptable yeah and you were talking a lot there about the idea of the the hindu caste system the other thing of that is really in all religions the goal is to like reach fulfillment right like go on to a better place when you die and yep. for Hindus, if you're lower on that caste system, the goal Sorry. is to die and be rebirthed yeah. into something higher. And you can be on that cycle for 100 years. That's why so many Hindus converted to Buddhism, where they believed it, you, could, you could get to that higher place in, in one lifetime. Um, so that's part of the reason why Islam was, was so attractive, right? You didn't have to go through the cycles of rebirth. Uh, you, could, you could reach paradise this lifetime and so that that had to be very attractive as well and the other thing about the indian ocean trade we're connecting a lot of different places in the world and in the saharan trade routes we're getting the middle east and we're getting like western and south uh like middle not southern africa but like middle africa sub-saharan africa in the indian ocean trade we have tons of cultures intertwining right and and not only these non-physical things, these religions, these ideas, this knowledge is being traded, but physically, like, people's diets are changing, right? Take, take trans-Saharan African trade again, for example. In, in sub-Saharan Africa, they could grow things like rice. They could grow uh, wheat down there. And so these people in northern Africa who really didn't have a lot of these, these grains that they could grow in a field— their diets are now changing. And so the, the composition, the, the chemical makeup of their body is shifting. And it, it's really like growing like what humans are like physically. And so not, not only the intellectual exchange, but how the, the human body itself started to change because of all of this. It's, it's uh, I don't know, it's just wild. I mean, and, and you can even bring it to today. Right with COVID nineteen and just the 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 massive change of of the way of our lives right now, COVID nineteen started in China, and now it's global. Same thing was happening back then as trade happened. You know, people had different immunities to different sicknesses because of where they lived and, and what their climate was like, and, and a ton of different factors. And as you start to move around the globe, you introduce those new diseases which then people start to grow immunities to. And so like the, the actual like genetic makeup of our bodies begin to shift during these trades as well. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, some, some cool stuff. So Marabian, anything else that you want to touch on before uh, we get out of, the, out of here for today? Man, I think I'm good. It was a good talk. We covered a lot of stuff here today. We talked about Pokemon, your BMW, kind of jealous all this trade a lot of muslim talk today a lot of it's muslim good, talk 
It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Well, hey, you guys, thank you so much for listening to our first full episode of Old News with Cool Dudes. Uh, we really appreciate you. You guys named it. Yes, yes, you guys named it. Uh, I kind of like it. It's cool. It's cool. We're cool. This, uh, this intro slash, slash outro music is, uh, is pretty good, too. I'm pretty proud of myself. We'll record another episode next weekend. We'll drop the topic uh, sometime next week on Twitter. And you guys can submit any questions about that topic that you have. We also have some ideas of some guests that are going to come on with us that we're pretty excited for as well. So you guys stay safe. Wash your hands. Stay six feet away from people. Continue social distancing because it is working. And we will be back with another episode next Monday. That's right. Have a great weekend. We'll see you later. Bye.